Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikel Rogers-Wood. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, a retired dean of general studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. In case you missed episode three, and by the way, I would suggest going back to listen to that episode if you haven't heard it, or going all the way back to the beginning of this season if you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes. But in case you missed episode three, I do want to remind you that the audio that we recorded with Malu Pinohu isn't as clear as the others because we recorded it outside. It was a rare day in spring in Texas, and it was good for her to be able to spend some time outside. When we left off in our last episode, we were talking with Sarah Haverstick. She was going to attend her annual checkup and had gotten a call from her physician that something was awry with her blood work. He said, well, don't panic, but I'd like you to go to the ER. And, you know, well, panic doesn't panic when somebody says, I'd like you to go to the ER. And I'd like you to go to the ER in September of 2020 when COVID is like all over the place, right? So I wound up at the ER that afternoon and, you know, thus started the journey. So we did lots of labs, lots of stuff, like basically trying to figure out what was going on in that initial period. And I remember that night, you know, other things that you don't necessarily ever need to hear from a healthcare provider. Um, I'm in the ER, you know, waiting. And at that point I knew I was being admitted. So I knew that I was staying. Um, and the ER doc comes in and says, you know, a lot of people show up in my ER every day that have no business being here. I'm really glad you showed up at the ER today. You, you need to be here. And I was like, okay, well, that's, I don't want to need to be here. So thanks for that. (laughs) So that's kind of what started it. I mean, it was just like not feeling great, but you know, I wound up being diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which leukemia is a blood cancer. Um, So that's like, essentially my tumor was my blood. You know, my blood was not doing what it needed to be doing. And I was, severely neutropenic when I got there. I mean, I needed blood and that's why he wanted me to go to the ER to start with. Cause he's like, even if it's, you know, it could be nothing, but you need blood, you need a transfusion and they'll be able to take care of that stuff when you go. It ter- obviously turns out it was more than nothing. Um, we did a bone marrow biopsy that week. And then when I got the diagnosis, I think it was a Friday morning and I got the diagnosis from the team and you know, obviously I was devastated. I mean, I just burst into tears and like, yeah. they kept saying like, it could be bacterial. It could be some kind of infection. It could, it might maybe be cancer, but it could be all these other things too. So I think we were all hoping, you know, it's just one of these other weird fluky things, but it wasn't, you know, it was leukemia. So they also said then, but we're gonna transfer you to Moffitt. Like it wasn't a, you get to go home. There was no going home being discussed. It was a, we're gonna send you to this other place where they're going to take care of you. And they did. I mean, I felt a thousand times better when I got to Moffitt. Um, it, it felt like I was in the place that I needed to be. Like they understood, you know, mm. this is something that they do all the time. This is terrifying for me, but they handle this daily. You know, they know what to do with it so that, was good, but it was, it was a lot. 
<laughs> so that's kind of where we started. Yeah. I went through, I was there for a month when I got to Moffitt. So that first initial um, time, because, you know, it is so serious. And because I was neutropenic means, you know, I had no protection. I had like my white blood cell count was basically non-existent for most of that month. So without any white blood cells, yeah, you have no protection. Well, I'm just thinking about the context again, September, 2020, September, October, this is not the time to have no white blood cells. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't go home. I mean, it's like, you're not going anywhere. You're coming. I took an ambulance ride up to Moffitt. Thankfully lights not flashing. Cause again, with what I do for a living, I was like, no, 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 (laughs) I don't need to be in an ambulance. There's lots of crashes that happen there. I don't love this. So that was, you know, another piece of, I didn't need to know, but, um, yeah, got up there and yeah, they were like, you know, we're going to figure it out. And unfortunately, the hardest part for me was there was a little bit of waiting. I think, you know, everybody's cancer diagnosis is different. And for a lot of people, there's probably a good bit more waiting. For me, it was, you know, obviously I'm impatient now. We need to figure this out, but we were going to figure it out. Like they were going to run their own labs. I had to do another bone marrow biopsy. You know, they were going to get their own stuff and we were going to drill down to exactly what the treatment protocol was going to be. Once we did that, I felt a lot better. And once we got into treatment, I was very grateful. I went through four, four full rounds of chemotherapy. Um, I did a count when I hit my one year to see, like, go back and really figure out like exactly how many chemo sessions that was. And it was something like 70 something chemo sessions. Um, but yeah, it was a lot. So it was wait, 70 just four rounds. Yeah. Yeah. So it like Mm -hmm. the way that it worked, the different types. Yeah. Cause I would, it's four rounds. Um, really it was just Mm -hmm. two rounds, but they call it a, a one, a one B two, a two B kind of situation. I guess I did that four times. Yeah. So it was a lot and inpatient, um, every other time. So outpatient weeks, I was doing two a day chemo for a week and then going back on another time. Right. So it was a lot. (laughs) It's a pretty aggressive chemo schedule, I think, but thankfully I felt really good. So the chemo was okay. And I felt really good during chemo. And after the first round, we did another bone marrow biopsy and I had already, gone to like minimal residual disease, you know, so I was already showing signs that things were working the way that they needed to be working. And that was great because going in, my hematologist was really fabulous, but he was also very like, this is what it is. And I had a genetic marker that is sometimes resistant to chemotherapy. So he, I mean, he was upfront about that. Like, there's good leukemia and there's bad leukemia. This is the first thing he said to me in like our first outpatient appointment together. Now I had been working with him for two weeks inpatient. So I felt like I knew the guy really well at this point, but he's like, there's good and there's bad. You're closer to the bad. Um, So he had, you know, some concerns about stuff and genetics being some of that and this mutation being one of those things. So, you know, I felt really good knowing that that first round, you know, my body was responding. I was doing a good thing. You know, I was tired, but I wasn't feeling, you know, I wasn't having any sickness. I wasn't having any big Mm -hmm. drama with the chemo. I lost all of my hair. Like a a year ago at this time, I was 100% bald. Um, But but that was fine. You know, I knew that I was coming back. So that really didn't bother me any. Um, And then it was, I knew from the beginning, from that very first hospital stay, that the ultimate goal was to have a bone marrow transplant. 
what they would call a stem cell transplant. So we knew that that was the route that would be the best ultimate therapy for me. Um, so my brother and sister were tested to see if they were a match for me. Um, and they were half. So they were each a half match, which is workable, but not ideal. So then we went into the donor database and they were able to find me a full match donor. So like shortly after the new year into 2021, I found out that I had a full match donor in the database uh, and we moved forward with the bone marrow or yeah, with the bone marrow transplant, which we did in March of 2021. So then, and that's a whole other, you know, three months away from the kids, three months of like a whole month in the hospital and then having to live, um, up by the hospital for another, you know, two, two and a half months afterwards. Um, Cause you have to just like, I, if I was sick when I had the leukemia in the very beginning being neutropenic, I mean, you have no protection after the transplant. You don't okay. have any of your, any of the vaccines that you ever got as a child, like none of that exists in your system anymore. So you're really, really very, susceptible to basically anything. So you have to stay isolated. So given that it was the time of COVID, that means your family could not have visited you then. So I thought, you know, honestly, COVID I think actually helped me a little bit. And it's weird to say that. So it certainly added a layer of complication to everything that was happening. I think visiting at Moffitt, you know, it's a cancer center. I think visitation is probably fairly restricted in normal times. I was able to have visitors in the hospital. So I had, you know, my mom came at different points. I think my dad came. My husband came almost every night. You know, I wanted him to be home with the kids mostly, but mm-hmm. he came most nights to visit with me. And the nurses were so kind because, you know, visiting hours were supposed to end at six, but he didn't get off work and couldn't get all the way up to Tampa from where we live until usually just before then. So then they would just let him hang out and stay and he would stay and watch Jeopardy with me because we like to watch a lot of Jeopardy in our house. So he'd stay (laughs) and do Jeopardy with me and then he would go home to the kids. So that was great. You know, it was, I felt like that was fine. The bummer was, and I think this is probably true anytime, you know, the kids weren't allowed to come. So I couldn't have them visit at the hospital, which was definitely a bummer. And we definitely didn't, you know, I wasn't like open invitation to friends or anybody else to come. Mm. Um, A dear friend, Amy, uh, was able to come. She lived local to the hospital anyway. So she was able to come a couple times and visit, which was really helpful. Uh, But mostly, you know, the people that were visiting me it was a very small pool of people that were allowed to come and visit. But for me personally, and I think in terms of my mental health, COVID actually helped a lot because with my work, I'm usually traveling all across the country and I love, I love, love the work that I do. And I love the opportunity I have to go to conferences and to educate car seat technicians from around the country. And if I hadn't been able to do that and all of the people that I would normally be traveling with were all going to all of these things without me, it would have been Mm -hmm. really hard. But the fact that COVID was happening and basically the entire world was doing everything virtually meant I get to, got to keep doing it. Like I got to keep doing everything that I love to do in this virtual space, even though I was going through treatment. Like I took a couple months off in the beginning to like, your brain needs to process this idea that you've just been told you have cancer and you know what mm-hmm. on earth is happening and how am I going to feel with chemotherapy. But once I knew I was feeling okay, I went back to work because I wanted to and because it gave me something other than, you know, 
home TV shows to watch. Like I wanted mm -hmm. something to keep my brain busy and I was able to still participate virtually in all of these conferences that I would have been going to any other time. And I think that helped me a lot because it kept things kind of normal. So you didn't feel like you were missing life exactly. the way that yeah. in regular times right. you would have. Yeah. To circle back really quick, I'm actually, I don't know anything about how, like I didn't realize that your immune system went back to zero when you have leukemia and have to get a um, stem cell uh -huh. transplant. So how, how do they go about building your body back up so that you can like be out in the world? Yeah. It's interesting. Um, so my, you know, very lay person, non-clinical understanding of how this all works is I actually did a full week of radiation too, leading up to the transplants. Uh, we did a week of total body radiation. Cause again, like if my tumor is the blood, your blood is everywhere and they want to yeah. actively treat all of your blood. And that's what they were doing with the chemotherapy. But then with radiation, you know, they're radiating all of your bone to get inside to that bone marrow. And the radiation team was actually pretty cool. It was one of the really fun appointments that I went to. I thought like, they're just really nerdy about what they do. And they were really, they explained things in a way that I didn't feel like I needed a medical degree to understand what they were talking about. But their idea is like, you know, the radiation as your blood is like growing in your bone marrow, that radiation is going to continue to impact the cells. So we do it the week before the idea is to basically kill all of me, like get rid of all of my mm -hmm. blood producing cells, get rid of everything. And then as my, uh, then I get my transplant. So I get all of these stem cells from a donor. And as those stem cells are starting to take over, the radiation is continuing to kill and to affect any of the new cells my body is trying to create that are me um, because it was in the bone and in the bone marrow, I guess the effects of radiation last much longer than like the chemotherapy is, you know, pretty in and out. It treats it and then it's like out of your system. The radiation stays in your system a little bit longer. So then it continues to mm. kill all your stuff. Cause at the end of the day, the goal is you become hundred percent donor cells, which is where I've been. Uh, so you want to be hundred percent of their cells. Um, in terms of how they build you back, it's really slow. It's a hard process after transplant. Um, it's definitely, you know, not something that you would ever want anybody to have to go through. Um, I had a really bad case of mucositis right after. So when you're, you get your transplant, and I still felt really good on transplant day. And then it was two days after where things started to feel bad because your blood counts tank and that's what they want. They want to kill all of you. You've, they've tanked your counts. You're down to zero with those white blood cells again and neutropenic for a long time. But then, you know, previously they would give you like growth shot injections to like get your body to overproduce so that you could kick yourself back up and get those white blood cells to count, come back up. They can't do that mm -hmm. after transplant because they don't want to encourage your body to produce anymore. They want those new cells mm -hmm. to take over. So it's just kind of a waiting game of, you know, they're giving you all kinds of additional medication, antibiotics, antivirals, this, that, whatever, you know, all of this therapy stuff that you need. And you're just kind of waiting on your body to start turning the corner again. So you get to zero and you, I think I stayed at zero for a little while. And then you start to go up. So the mucositis, like it was bad for nine days. I was basically on verbal lockdown. I still worked a little bit, but I'd be in meetings saying like, hey, I can't talk. I'm chatting in the chat. Like 
I'm going to send messages in the chat. If you need me, please look at the chat. Like I can't verbalize. I couldn't even order like call on the phone and order at the kitchen, like what I needed to eat that day. And I really couldn't eat anything anyway, because your whole mouth hurts so bad. So you're on a pain pump and basically just around the clock, like narcotic type pain meds, because it's that like, you just don't even know how painful that is when you're basically your entire mouth is inflamed. Uh, but Ooh. once you, and they kept saying, once your cells start to regenerate, you're going to feel better. Like once the blood, white blood cells, like once things start going in the other direction and it did, like as soon as it's things start kicking up and you know, that your stem cells have actually gra engrafted and they're starting to do something, you do start to feel better, which is good. Um, and then, you know, as soon as you start to feel better and you get discharged and you're still in a very low point at discharge, I mean, you're still in a place where you shouldn't be around people and you have to have a caregiver with you. And that's why I had to stay at a hotel that was close to the hospital for like, I mean, it was almost three months probably at the hotel. Like you have wow. to be away from folks. And I mean, I was basically at Moffitt every day, you know, you're going back every day, you're having, you know, infusions of one type or another. And mostly it's all like, thankfully for me it wasn't too hardcore crazy. It was just things to keep your body doing what your body was doing. But I did then get, you can get GVHD, which is graft versus host disease, where your body is trying to attack the cells because they recognize like mm -hmm. you've now it's added this foreign thing to your body and they, your body knows mm -hmm. like, Hey, what the heck, you know, you guys don't belong here. And they start to attack. And I think in some way they want to see that reaction. Like that's your immune system trying to say like, yo, stop. But at the same time, um, they don't want it to be so bad because they want these other cells to take over. They want that to be the thing that becomes your body. Uh, so for me, it was a skin rash all over like bright red, really painful to walk for a couple of days, everything. And then I molted like a snake that was kind of just like oh. hands and feet, just peeling oh like the goodness. worst sunburn kind of you've ever had. But then, so I was on a really high dose steroid with that. So then they're treating, you know, that kind of stuff. But basically, back to your original question, like then you just get revaccinated. So at a certain point, like, I was going to ask, they yeah, had to start you over, take all of those baby vaccines again. So, you know, I had them at really? six months. I had them at my one year mark in March. I'll get them again in September at 18 months. And basically it's those same vaccines that you would take your kids to the doctor to get, like you're getting those again. And let me tell you, those babies have every reason to cry because it does not feel good. And some of those things burn a lot. <laughs> so oh I have total empathy for my poor babies who, you know, screamed at oh these shots because I feel them now. <laughs> but tell me something. Um, you talk about the um, bone marrow transplant. It is actually something like a blood transfusion. How long, how long does that actually take the entire process? Yeah, so it is way more. So my understanding is like back in the day, it used to be more of like this surgical procedure where they were actually, you know, doing like bone marrow biopsy. They're removing from the donor and then they're giving mm -hmm. you, you know, actually into your bone marrow. And that was way more intense is my understanding. And especially on the donor. So on the part of the donor, you know, they're feeling way more depleted for a, a more significant period of time. Now to be a donor, like it's basically like giving blood. So they take from the donor what they need, do their little centrifuge magic over here and then give the donor back what they don't need. So like if you were giving blood products like plasma or what, it would be like that kind of a blood donation. Yeah. Uh, and then that mm -hmm. comes to us. And then I think I had, I'd have to look back at notes, but I had seven or eight bags of cells from my donor and it was about 
20 to 30 minutes per bag. So the nursing staff warned me on transplant day. They're like, you know, this should and hopefully will be uneventful. And for most people, like you get so hyped up for this, you know, like, yeah, I'm getting my cells. It's, it's transplant day. This is great. And then, uh, you know, it winds up being kind of what, what, not a lot, because it's just like getting a blood transfusion. So I sat, you know, I sat in the chair, I was on the computer a little bit, but I had a central line, they were hooked up, and I was just getting the cells. And uh, it, again, 20 to 30 minutes a bag. It's a very like, specific, it's almost like hanging chemo. There's always a multiple people making sure that when you're hanging chemo, you've got the right person and the right drug and everything is like appropriately set up. So there's always those checks and balances. And this was a lot like that. I mean, they had to individually bring each bag of cells to me. They had to sign off on a lot of stuff each time. So it took 30 to 45 minutes a bag and a couple hours later, then we're done. And they give you like Benadryl and stuff beforehand. So you're a little bit sleepy by the time it's done anyway. And then I just I actually laid in bed and watched a hockey game because the Lightning were playing my Nashville Predators and it was in Tampa. So I actually had like, it was on my hospital TV. So I was like, well, this is a great day. Stem cells and I get to watch the Predators. But I'll tell you what, as a lay person who's not familiar with um with that disease, typically when you hear about cancer, you hear stage one, stage two, stage three kind of thing. With your, oh. with your um, type of cancer, was there a stage involved? I honestly don't know. My husband kept asking and he really wanted to know. And in the beginning, I didn't want to know. Like if there was a stage, I didn't want to know that I was stage four. Like I just needed to know that we had a plan and that we were moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the plan yeah. and this is what we're going to do. And that's really all I cared to know. So I never asked. And he, you know, was there after hours when the docs weren't there, so he never asked. <laughs> I, th- I would say that my biggest, my biggest benefit is my support system. That was Malu. I have this incredible support system, and so it, it, it's like I have somebody taking care of me, my parents taking care of my kids, but usually the person taking care of me is also one of my best friends or a close relative who also wants to spend time with my kids. I guess you start creating a new normal and you also learn to just accept help. I know it's hard to ask for help, but there's no better time to do it than when you have cancer, you know, and you learn to accept help and accept your limitations. And that's, that's been extremely humbling and challenging for me. I'll be honest about that because like you're getting me on a good day right now. I'm about to start my next chemo on Wednesday. So I'm starting to get out of the brain fog and I'm starting to like a lot of the side effects are starting to go down. I don't feel as horribly sick as I do most of the time today, but um, you just learn to accept expectations, limitations um, and just know that you can fight through it and, you know, get better, but also remember that everything comes in due time, which is hard. That was Malu talking about the challenges of going through cancer treatment, the things that she's learned, and the things that she's had to surrender. At the time of the recording of this podcast, she was right in the middle of her cancer treatment. So we've talked a lot about the process of being diagnosed and going through treatment for cancer. However, something you may remember if you listened to the previous episodes is that all of our guests this season are also mothers. 
And as you might imagine, cancer doesn't only affect the person who's been diagnosed, it affects those around them, particularly those who are closest to them. And children are no exception to that. So the big question that prompted this season of At the Same Time came from one of our guests, Lauren Huffmaster. She and I talked about how parents navigate telling their kids about cancer and the fact that different parents make different choices and kind of asking the question, what implications does a parent's decision about if and how to tell their child they have cancer, what kinds of implications does that have for the child, both in the moment and in the future? So to start us off on this piece of our conversation, let's go back to Amy Artuzo. You may remember that she worked as a child life specialist prior to becoming a doctoral student and prior to being diagnosed with cancer. She shares a bit about what it's like to navigate very difficult medical information with children and some of the best practices in helping them navigate situations where they might have to go through uncomfortable medical procedures. And that will loop us into thinking more about how kids handle difficult information. Well, thank you for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit more? Because a lot of people don't know what a child life specialist is. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that occupation is? Yes. And um, so I'm a little rusty because it's it's been quite a while since I was certified, but um, I hold high regard for child life specialists. They're relatively new in the whole scheme of the medical field um, when you compare to physicians and nurses, social workers. Um, but their role, they're trained in child development, and their role is to help children and families understand what's happening medically in a way that they can understand. Um, so um, almost like a translator for medical terminology in a way that a child of any age could understand. They use play as a main mode um, of helping normalize a medical experience. Back when I was doing it, it was primarily inpatient, but now I think there's more um, outpatient uh, opportunities as well. And I also worked with children of adult patients during my career. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And so we were, I was part of the, med- the multidisciplinary medical team. You know, you have rounds and physical therapy and occupational therapy might have certain goals. Say a child really should be using their right arm um, to meet some medical goals. Well, child life specialists work with children in playrooms or even in the patient room, and they can incorporate into play those those goals, but the children are having fun at the same time. So they don't even realize that they're working. And it's it's very focused on choice and control, the theory of choice and control, like adults decide what the choices are, and then but you can give choices to the children so that they also still feel like they're in control. And another part is the idea that preparing children in a developmentally appropriate manner for a medical procedure helps reduce the long-term negative consequences of medical experiences. So Uh, rather than having multiple adults come in and hold a child down to get an IV or stitches, if 
a child life specialist can go in and uh, using dolls and medical equipment, have the child pretend to be the doctor and go through the procedure first um, and empowering them so that they can ask their questions, they can touch the materials. I think every child is different, so you have to meet them where they're at. Next time on At the Same Time. Because of my history as a child life specialist, it was never a question. I was going to talk to my children about this um, because I know children overhear things. When they put bits and pieces of information together, often it's worse than if you had just talked to them openly and honestly. Um, you know, depending on their developmental stage, they have trouble distinguishing between reality and fantasy. You know, you could get into all those developmental um, aspects. But um, in addition, my grandmother died from metastatic breast cancer. I've been genetically tested. I do not have the gene, but that's not a level of understanding my children have gotten into. They just know grandma died from breast cancer. If you enjoy the show, Please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also send us an email. Our address is sametimepod at gmail.com. Thank you to our guests, Malu Panohu, Amy Artuzo, Sarah Haverstick, and Lauren Huffmaster. Episode written and produced by Dr. Nikel Rogers-Wood. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2022 by Nikel Rogers-Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.